to the Depolarize Podcast. Hi. My name's Dan Cook. And I'm Ellen Morrow. And this is a show where we seek to find common ground and a couple laughs at the intersection of politics, psychology, and religion in no particular order. Ellen, how do you feel right now? I feel okay. How do you feel, Dan? <laughs> I feel pretty good. Good. Uh, I feel pretty good. We haven't been recording for a few months, and now we're, we're How doing was your it summer? My summer was pretty good. What do normal. adults say when they're they don't go to school? Adults say, just, like, "Oh, live so busy. Oh, so oh, busy. I'm so busy. I was so busy." And then that basically means I'm important. I'm better than you. Yeah, I have. There are more people who want to spend time with me than I'm able to spend time with. That's what "so busy" means. So lucky. So this is kind of a this is a context episode for next week's episode. And what next week's mean? episode, well, con- I'm going to explain. I'm going to explain. Next week's episode is going to ask, should people who are having questions about the evangelical church, should they stay or should they go? Yes. And yes, there will be a Clash song <laughs> involved. But this week, we're trying to give some context for that question. And if we could put it in one phrase, it would be something like this. It's a crazy moment to be an evangelical. This is a weird, politically charged, socially charged, you know, what are the crusts, earth crusts hitting each other, volcanic moment to be an evangelical. Please don't talk about the earthquake that's coming, Dan. The big one? (laughs) Don't worry. The one thing that my Lexapro will not cure me of is thinking about the ground swallowing me up. That is not so unlikely. All right. (laughs) Okay, but you it, says the guy who's not a scientist. <laughs> you could just move to the Midwest or something. I trust me, Cole and I are talking about it. Okay, well, there's we'll have to do this over Skype, but anyway, so it's a crazy moment. It is a crazy moment in evangelicalism, and today we're going to be hearing from a couple guys who know a lot about evangelicalism, the history. They know some of the critiques. But they also know some of the really good things. And so this is, as I said, a contextual episode, really to kind of lay the groundwork for the question we're asking next week. And we're mostly going to be hearing, actually exclusively, from two people. Paul and Moses. Paul and Moses. Ellen's going to be reading 1 Corinthians and Exodus. I'm going to stand up and go to the mic. (laughs) Dr. Daryl G.I. Hart is a historian of church history. You might remember him from episode three of season two, when we talked about looking at the evangelical stat, what does it mean to be an evangelical? And then our other guest is Dr. James K. Wellman. Sometimes I call him Jim Wellman. He's here in Seattle. He is the chair of the comparative religion department at the University of Washington. And he has done a lot of research, written multiple books on evangelical Christianity versus liberal Protestant Christianity. He's an awesome dude. And he's got a lot of good things to say. And there's some fun little autobiographical tidbits about how this has affected his life. But we will get to those when we get to them. And for now, here we are with Dr. Hart. I asked him, what does the word evangelical mean today to the average American? That is the $64,000 question, as it were. It used to mean 
having a personal relationship with Jesus or having Jesus in your heart, having had a conversion experience. When does the word evangelical become popular in America to use, to describe a group of people? 1976, I would say, with the so-called Year of the Evangelical, Newsweek magazines devotes a front cover story to it associated with the candidacy of Jimmy Carter, who identified himself as an evangelical. So that's interesting to note that evangelical is a much, much newer term. It does not come from scripture the way born again does, right? Paul says, you must be born again. I mean, that's in right. the New Testament. Right. Well, yeah, I, I mean, euangelion, the Greek word is the word for gospel. And I mean, the original Protestant movement in Germany, those churches are still classified as evangelical in Europe because they're not Roman Catholic. So in, in, okay. in up, in, up until, say, even, I would say up until the 19. 20s in the United States, the, the terms evangelical and Protestant were interchangeable. Even modernists, I mean, really pretty liberal theological guys, would have described themselves as evangelical. Now, of course, they weren't thinking Billy Graham. Billy Graham was like four years old then. Right. But that slice of evangelicalism hadn't emerged yet. That didn't emerge until the 1940s. Back in the 1920s, to be evangelical still just meant to be kind of a mainline Protestant. Many evangelicals are considering leaving the movement because of how politicized the movement has become. But Dr. Hart thinks this actually shows a lack of historical perspective for a movement that has always been political. I mean, so you find, you know, a lot of people now, especially academics, some church or religious organization leaders in the evangelical world saying that they want to get out because it obviously evangelicalism is fraught with all this political, all these political problems. But again, it, it seems that this is lacking something of a historical perspective in that from the 1940s on, when I would, which is when I would basically date the beginning of evangelicalism as we have come to use it over the end of the 20th century and into this century, it started with efforts by people who had been burned by fundamentalism to try to bring together Protestants who were either on the outside of the mainline churches or Protestants in those churches who were who were didn't like how liberal those churches had become and set up a, a separate set of organizations. And among the major players in that effort was Billy Graham, who became sort of the poster boy for the movement. And I don't think you can look at evangelicalism in the 40s and 50s and not say it's political. I mean, there, it's, right. not, it's not as if it's not also trying to do religious stuff. It is trying to do religious stuff, but it's again – in the category, I think, of at many times of religious nationalism, because what those evangelicals in the 1940s wanted to do, they were then called neo-evangelicals, is try to replicate what the mainline churches were already doing, and they were sort of the, the Protestant establishment. So this was going to be the evangelical establishment and would have a seat at the table the way the mainline churches did, politically and culturally. And hmm. I, don't, I don't see how that's not 
political than even from the 1940s on. And Billy Graham, you know, as many people have, have understood him, I'm not trying to reduce him to politics, but he he, he comes to fame in some ways in, in the Los Angeles crusade in 1949. And oh, by the way, crusade becomes a very difficult term to call those revivals. Yes, problematic. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, he's he has some anti-communist lines in several of his sermons, which, you know, the story goes is that Hearst tells his newspaper reporters to pump Graham because he's he's on the right side of the communist issue. Mm. And I think Graham was naive at times about this. And I think he was probably motivated more by religious ideals. But again, if if part of being American is to also be Protestant in a way, which I think was true up until the 60s, then it's not, it wouldn't be unusual to think that Graham would be susceptible to certain kinds of just assumptions about American politics that could bleed over into Christian nationalism. It makes me think of this Tim Keller piece from December in The right. New Yorker. He has a quote in there. He says, and he's an older guy, you know, I think he's in his 60s now. So his quote is, when I used the word to describe myself in the 1970s, he means the word evangelical, it meant that I was not a fundamentalist. If I use the name today, however, it means to hearers that I am. How did that shift happen from the 70s to now that evangelical was over and against fundamentalism and now has some, in some sense aligned with fundamentalism? When Keller self-identified in, say, the mid-70s. This was before the moral majority. And so from Reagan on, the Republicans, whether they've actually done much about it in legislation or policy, have been good at, on picking up on things like abortion and marriage and family values and the like. And over time, that increasingly became identified. I remember during the Monica Lewinsky scandal, Andrew Sullivan wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine, I think it was the cover story, and there was a fist on the front with, with the uh, index finger pointing up, and the title of the piece was Scold or something to that effect. And it was at that point that the religious right and evangelicals, there wasn't a whole lot of distinction between evangelicals and fundamentalists, became identified with being the party of the scold, who were moralizers, Puritans about some of these cultural matters. Yeah, sexual which, or personal right. morality issues, yeah. I mean, I, I think that would be the explanation for why that looks fundamentalist now. Fundamentalist being the word that we use interchangeably, say, with Puritan. Yeah. It's quite remarkable to have almost 35 years. My first job at Wheaton was to direct the Institute for the Study of American Evangelicals. And we kind of have a, had a set piece on what we were were about. We weren't trying to forward or promote evangelicalism, but we were trying to study it, and we had fairly good criteria for what you know counted as something we would study and and what wasn't. And and now all of a sudden, it could be that that Trump and Ferguson just say those thirty five years of scholarship are undone. Pack the books up and send them to the to the storage bins. This is where my mind's going. I just want to make sure I'm on track with you. So if you want to use the Lifeway research theological test for evangelicalism, if you ask people those questions and then you sort them by evangelical using those four, 
if they are white, they voted for Trump by roughly 80%. And if they are black, they voted for Hillary by roughly 80%. So what you're then left to conclude is that having evangelical beliefs made no difference on who you voted for. It was identical, at least between those two racial groups. Now, maybe Asians and Latinos are different, but between white and black, evangelical belief had nothing to do with who you voted for. It had almost everything to do with your ethnicity. Right. Is that what you're talking well, about? What people are questioning is how salient, how how significant that theological definition is if it doesn't lead people to actually vote consistently the same way. And it seems to me in some ways too, what you can do now is to say, if you're an evangelical academic politician, pundit, whatever, you can say, oh, see the black church, they're the real evangelical because see their faith matters in the right way, as opposed to those other people who voted for Trump or on the other side, you know, the other side will say, oh, see those people didn't, they voted for pro-abortion candidates or whatever. And so their faith isn't the genuine article. Um, I do my, my own sense of studying religion and politics, politics in the United States is that people look for rationales for their decisions all the time. And if they happen to be religious, they look for religious reasons. But it doesn't look to me like it necessarily uh, – they go right from the pages of scripture or right from the pastor to then looking at the candidate. They actually look at the candidate and then f- go to scripture or the pastor to try to justify – their their decision. Right. Well, and that's basically Jonathan Haidt's thesis in The Righteous Mind and Moral Foundations Theory is that, and, and among other psychologists and sociologists, is that most of our arguments, we come to, you know, post facto. We come to them afterwards, after our inclinations. But it seems like the safest conclusion to draw from that data, for instance, that white and black evangelicals voted in equal proportion for the opposite candidate with the exact same theological beliefs. It just seems like the the safest thing to say is the beliefs have very little to do with it. They don't determine the vote. If, if in fact you have these two populations, they check the same four boxes and they vote exactly in opposite numbers for two candidates, then what we have to conclude is when it comes to voting for president, and, and all that that entails, race is a far bigger determinant than evangelical belief. Right. You just no, have to say that. Right. I think Be, that's right. Because there's a much, much, there's a zero correlation for the one, and there's like a 0.6 correlation, 0.7 for the other. I mean, it's just, how do you, what other way is there to say it than that? I mean, you can point, you can then say, well, I understand Christianity this way, and these people understand it. But it, it seems irresponsible for either side to claim that it's about the theological beliefs at that point. It's obviously about identity stemming from race. You stumped him. I didn't stump him. I just, we switched topic at that point, so I ended the that clip. That edit sounded like you asked that question and then he was just like, <laughs> My whoa, <drop. laughs> whoa. I never end, I, I don't end clips with myself very often because it sounds weird, but in that case, it just made more sense. So what did you think? There was a lot in there. I say that often, but there was a big chunk of conversation. Well, I'll tell you what, any anytime anybody brings up Bill Graham. Old Billy. <laughs> Billy Willie. Willie Graham. I, you know, I have a soft spot for him. 
just good man in a lot of ways. Yeah, obviously. yeah, and yeah. it's hard to great uh, man in a lot of ways. It's always hard to really look at history and think like, oh, this something that I thought was so good is mm-hmm. actually sort of yeah. like not that great. The fact that he was the president's pastor is great in so many ways, but then, but it just shows how politically steeped he yeah. was. And it's interesting, like. Daryl's point is well taken that like he was probably naive at some points about how he was being used politically. Sure. Or to sell newspapers or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's also something else there when you mention he's the president's pastor. This really gets to the heart of what white evangelicalism believes about politics, about race, about anything that's not the gospel. Only a white evangelical could have been the pastor to so many presidents on every side of the aisle. That's a good thing in a sense, because it, it lets him be basically nonpartisan. Right. And then sort of offer political like advice free. You're saying that like Martin Luther King Jr. Could never have been. Well, first of all, the, some of them wouldn't have had him, right. They would never have had him. Right. So, and then he, and then he also probably, I, I mean, I, I don't know what he would have done. Let's if he talk had about how much of an incredible president's pastor he would have been. He would have been great. But you think about like LeBron James and Steph Curry going like, we're not going to visit the White House just because we won the finals or whatever. Right, right. Like, right. They don't, it's not like, a privilege. To they're be, not going to go. They're, right. They don't want the photo op. They, they don't need to be a part of that. Right. Yeah. So it's only an individualistic evangelical type of Christian who could be like, yeah. Well, but you're talking about, but you're talking about NBA guys that are not carrying the weight of like, I'm going to be the chaplain. Right, right. Sure. They're not being asked to be the chaplain. I guess I'm just saying what what I'm learning about evangelicalism, and this will come out in a number of episodes this season, is it's just this focus on individualism. It's like God and the individual and then the individual to the other individual. And we talked about this last season where I was really sorting out the idea of like Christian, conservative, Republican, which I always thought I was. And then the idea of being liberal and Christian and liberal and what that meant, democratic and Christian and liberal sometimes. And then how individualistic... It is to be on the right. Yeah. I had never really, yeah. really looked at it like that. And now it's all over the place and I can't, I can't stop looking at it. Well, I would just point to our episode uh, with Michael O. Emerson, which I don't know what the order will be for which one will come out first, but we go through a, a good bit of that. And there's a lot of really good sociological work that sort of shows that white evangelical Christians are the most individualistic segment of America, which is the most individualistic society in the history of the world. And so an individualistic person can go, yeah, I mean, I could be hanging out with all the presidents or whatever. Yeah. But someone who said, no, there are like real spiritual implications to like this welfare reform bill or this crime bill or whatever would would end up not in the graces of some politicians Unless, occasionally. Yeah, well, we're getting into the, it a little bit because this person could challenge a pro- What a right. cool opportunity it, it, be, it would be I know. to have the- This is where it's uh, hard. And I'm not, I'm not impugning Billy Graham for doing that. I'm just saying only an evangelical could do it because an evangelical fundamentally believes- all the political stuff is secondary to preaching the gospel. But but also because in our last how many presidents 
that's been what has been accepted. That's evangelical is how to be Christian in the public. Yeah, I mean, I guess Bill Clinton was Methodist, although the whatever Bill Clinton did religion wise is but I mean, almost when definitely Bill, just. But I for mean, public. when Billy Graham yeah. was really like. Well, he was in his Clinton, yeah, 30s, was, 40s, oh, 50s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, no, when he was rising. Obama. But by the time Bill that Bill Clinton was a president, Billy Graham was already in the chair as the president's pastor. Oh, I pastor. see what you're saying. I see what you're I'm saying. I'm saying like. So he had no choice but to say yeah. yes. Right, right, right. It's, so you're right in that whoever the popular president's pastor would have been had to have been a white evangelical because that is. Mm, who would have seat of power been yeah. yeah that's who would have been in yes that's president. so you're saying it from the opposite way you're saying the only person who would qualify to be the president's pastor on both sides would Had be an evangelical been white and i'm saying the opposite way which is the only type of christian who would want to do that would be an evangelical they're both they're probably uh, both yeah, yeah, true yeah. so we're coming but at bill it from clinton sides. just got you know, like at that point, what is he going to say? No to yeah, Billy Graham? The, I mean, he's not going to say no. What and an of app- course, he didn't. Bill Clinton's not a good person. Like it's not. Dan. No, of course not. Would you say he's, that to Hillary's face? I would. Yeah, I would say that. You think to her she face. knows it? I'm sure she knows it. Do you it. think she's sticking with him just because? I don't know how good of a person Hillary is, but I'm <laughs> positive she's a better person than Bill. Like he's, even in all the Me Too stuff, he's like still defending himself. Like he's not a good person. He may have been an effective as a, president as a democrat how do you feel about that that's fine he i, I so think you in, don't, i don't i was not paying a lot of attention to politics in the 90s so i'm not going to so make you a bunch absolved of, from all those sins no i'm just saying it's possible that he so did it doesn't good matter stuff. so what you're saying right now is it doesn't <laughs> matter to you Where as you a democrat going? that a person of like bad moral character would have been in the presidency because of the political party that you subscribe to no no i think it does matter to me and i was if i had been of age to be a part of that conversation that would have been interesting okay. but i wasn't just for my own pleasure yeah. yeah if it was trump or bill clinton who would you vote for bill clinton in a heartbeat so it doesn't matter the character it does matter they're both really bad so they might even out on on so, I, so, so, I mean, you, honestly, so you're so you're gonna go what for are we the counting is moral le- character less sexually two, two sexually evils. they're evil, but Trump also you know my stuff with Trump. There's a I just much wanted to more. get you to say you're it. just trying. I just to, wanted okay. to get you well, to struggle. I'm not struggling. But speaking of the '90s, because this is a nice segue Let's back talk into about the '90s, Doctor Hart. He recalls speaking with some political scientists in the '90s one Democrat, and one Republican. And here's what he has to say. They were so committed to the idea that faith does inform what Christians do that to say then that race determines it more would be to say that, wait, religion doesn't matter. And that would be a problem for somebody, an academic, who has invested so much effort in showing that religion does matter. It would also be a problem for a Christian who is – who somehow, somehow thinks that, yeah, f- faith is really important to me, so it must be important to all my fellow believers. And for blacks, this could be – I mean, I'm not black, so I can't speak for the black church, but it could be a problem too because then you might have to say that, say, Martin Luther King Jr. and his I Have a Dream speech, which is, you know – the, the peroration with the in, invocation of scripture and whatnot, as well as the Declaration of Independence, but there's so much capital buildup in black Protestantism 
as with faith, the church being the basis for political activism, that if you want to say that really it's it's more about race than religion, you somehow discredit or discount right. that, well, that so, history. I mean, all I'm saying, all we can say with this data is that for the 2016 election, it didn't seem to make much difference. What mattered a lot more is that if you were, is if you were white or black. But right. it's also, that doesn't necessarily mean that religion isn't a part of it. In fact, I've been interviewing all these voters, white, black, you know, evangelical, non-evangelical, Trump voter, non-Trump voter, and the, their faith is a part of their political decisions. It's the, it's the lens through which they see most, most of the world. But what we might have to conclude is that Jesus doesn't obviously give us one political party or the other, but rather the Bible says a whole lot of things. And there are a lot of different ways that people conceive of their Christianity. And so they might still use that language, or maybe they're being motivated by parts of Christian theology that really do relate to, for instance, conserving family values, or that really do relate, for instance, to pursuing social justice. I mean, both of those things are in the Bible, right? It's not, it's not like either one has no verses to cite. They do. But what's interesting is that at least today, right here, right now, it, it isn't the thing that made the difference between black and white voters who hold the exact same theological beliefs at core. I'm kind of a small government libertarian type. I don't really want the nation defining my identity. You know, hey, I'm, I'm much more than America. Uh, I mean, there's more to me than that. And on the other side, you could also say to some Christians that, wait a minute, you're a lot more than just a Christian. You're a you're a father, you're a mother, you're, you're white, you're black, you're, you're Republican, you're Democrat. But we have, for whatever reason, we have trouble recognizing the multiplicity of identities that we have. And this is why I know in the Christian circles I traffic in, it's really hard to get people to say, you're not, an, you're not a Christian all the way down, that it doesn't define all of you. And I just think that's flat out wrong because so many Christians I know have diversity of interests, views on different things, and that Christianity, maybe that's the most important aspect of your life, but it doesn't mean that it determines how many hours of television my children get to watch or which novels I read or won't read. It could be that there are other other aspects of my life by which I make those judgments. Yeah. And for whatever reason, we, we do seem to be at a kind of zero-sum game when it comes to nationalism and religion in a way that it's all or nothing. I mean, it's not – I mean, it's really not that like that. But it, sometimes the way we talk about nationalism or the way we talk about faith, it, it winds up being a zero-sum game. And, and I think that far more likely and far more interesting are the people who who have a var- various factors in voting or making decisions about life and then sort of teasing out how they come to that in a way, which is more determinative or not. <laughs> right? No, that's, that's class, that's profession, that's education – it's what institutions you're involved in. Right. It's it's how you relate to those institutions or how enmeshed you are in the general, you know, US culture. It's all of that stuff. Right, exactly. At least
least that time I waited for him to say right exactly rather than doing a mic drop moment where it was ended on me. Yeah. You don't have much to add there? No. I, uh, good stuff. Yeah, good, good, <laughs> good stuff, Daryl. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Daryl. So that's fine. We'll, we'll go right back to Daryl. It's interesting to note that 30 years ago, so when we were five-ish, evangelicalism was a more unified expression of Christianity than it is today. It was, it was more cohesive and by a significant margin. So even using the word evangelical, all other things being equal, is less accurate and precise today than it was 30 years ago. I think that's really interesting. Wait, Dan, I have one question. What's the difference between a Christian fundamentalist and an American evangelical? Okay, so fundamentalist and evangelical have different meanings. Fundamentalism, and I hope I don't botch this, but fundamentalism is basically, and this is true for not just Christianity, but Islam, Hinduism, other religions— Fundamentalism usually, or maybe always, says we have this text. The truth. We have this text. Reading this text literally gives me absolute truth about the world, the universe, spiritual realm, everything. That's fundamentalism. And so if you're ignoring what this text says, and I am not ignoring it, then I'm on God's side and you're not. Yeah, but what I mean is within America— so What's in the difference America, between uh, an evangelical that we think of? Okay, so some evangelicals are fundamentalist, so but it's some not, evangelicals are not. Are not. No, like I was Describe raised— Describe a person who would be a white Christian evangelical who's not a—oh, me. Us. I was raised this way. We were both raised evangelical, But you're not means, an evangelical. Well, I'm not anymore, but I was till I was 25, whatever. I was raised evangelical. My, my parents are still evangelicals. They're white evangelicals. They're not fundamentalists. They would say, no, there are multiple interpretations of a lot of difficult scripture passages. Like, for instance, I would ask my dad growing up about Calvinism and predestination. Is there anyone who's a fundamentalist who's not a jerk? <laughs> and I'm not, yeah, I'm not no, even of course, joking. Of course there are. No, no, no of course there but are. How yeah. can you, but that uh, here, description, here's, here's like, how question. can you be a fundamentalist and not be Let's a go jerk. to this distinction that we've made on other episodes of like, not everybody needs to be really theologically literate. I would say this. You if you are, are a fundam fundamentalist. If you're a fundamentalist. No, 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 no. If you're a fundamentalist and you are the kind of person who really needs to think through your theology and be really literate in it, then you're probably a jerk. But if you're a fundamentalist sort of by family, you go to a fundamentalist church, but you're the kind of person who doesn't actually need to be super into your theology and really detailed, you might actually be a fantastic person. But you're just a fundamentalist by proxy, basically. Your church is a fundamentalist church. But you just love God and you love your neighbor. And you're doing the best you can. Hmm. But if you're the guy who's like, no, I'm going to pin you down at a Starbucks with my Bible and my Calvin's Institutes. Were you gonna... ever that guy? No, I was never that guy. No. I was. I've heard raised... you at parties years ago and I, like with an earshot, and I thought, whew. Fundamentalist. <laughs> okay. Uh, another uh, better word for that would be like, this guy's a bit much. Oh, okay. Yeah. But fun. I've never been a fundamentalist. I've never believed that I the had irony the Irony perfect... that it's a fundamentalist. You take it's the fun out of fundamentalism. Fundamentalists take the fun out of it. Yeah, they all do. So an evangelical who's not a fundamentalist would just be someone who's like, it's really important to me. The Bible is the authority for my life. A conversion experience is important. 
you know, it, there's a couple other things so like that. So me, I guess. Yeah, you're Since an evangelical. I'm apparently an evangelical, yeah, but I'm not, not a fun- fundamentalist. No, you, do you think that I any need, person... Do I need to take another quiz? <laughs> here, here's the quiz for fundamentalism. Do you think that any person who speaks basic English could open the Bible and discern perfectly everything about the world that they need to know from just reading the text? No. No, you're not a fundamentalist. There you go. Yeah. That was easy. That was that way was easy. easier than the evangelical yeah. bullshit. And yet I it still did. took us like five minutes. All right. So we will no, now go back to Daryl. And what Daryl is going to talk about, well, I'm going to start by uh, gently prodding him with a Amazon negative review of one of his books just to get him to respond to it. This is from a negative review of one of your books. Uh-oh. <laughs> it was written in 2011 on Amazon. And this is the, this is the reviewer. Quote, It is possible that evangelicals are politically at sea, and even in the misleadingly provocative title of this book, Betraying American Conservatism, but Hart doesn't deliver much in the way of evidence to make his case, end quote. But then Trump and Roy Moore happened, or what? How would you respond to that anonymous reviewer? I actually think Trump and more were in some ways in the book because the title of the book is from Billy Graham to Sarah Palin and Sarah Palin may actually represent a Trumpish, Moorish side, but there is a kind of populist strain that she represented that I I think was in the book. I, I do think that there was a construction, there was a creation of evangelicalism in the 1940s and that had a shelf life. And I think we're seeing the end of that shelf life. And more recently, I've been thinking about, in lines of this comment about a loss of a center, shelf life of evangelicalism seems to have coincided with the liberal international institutions that arose after World War II, that are also, you know, with Brexit and Trump and other things are suggesting they're also wearing out and people are tired of those things. And for whatever reason, evangelicalism rose up about then, and it seems to be showing signs of of not having a center to hold it together. I mean, there, the major institutions that did hold it together in the early days were Graham himself and his many organizations, Christianity Today magazine, Fuller Seminary, and the National Association of Evangelicals. Now, Fuller is not no longer near the, as near the center as it once was because it's may have gone liberal in some ways, at least that's what some evangelicals would say. The NAE, National Association, is still around, and Christianity Today are still around, but people don't really read magazines. And the NAE represents denominations and congregations, and with the rise of the megachurch phenomenon, say, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I think a lot of Americans are finding action for spiritual life outside congregational denominational structures. Right. So I guess what's different between that book and now is that there maybe still were evangelical voices or organizations that you could look to as kind of representing the evangelical point of view. And now it really does seem like there's no one there to hold that center together. And People who want to leave evangelicalism, one of the arguments I'd like to tease out is, okay, well, where are you going to go? What are you going to put together? I mean, as much as I myself am critical of evangelicalism, even the 1940s variety, it was remarkable what they accomplished. 
to be able to try to give some kind of coherence to these Protestants who didn't identify with the mainline churches. But it's really hard to put together some other kind of common identity that's going to get everybody back on this page over here. Right. So if, if they leave, it could be like England leaving the EU. Hmm. You're, you're smirking, Ellen. Smirking. This is, what this are you smirking is about? Stupid. When you were talking about Sarah Palin, I, I realized that that was the first time I remember things getting like this whole tea party thing. Getting and weird. That, yeah, getting weird. But I had I just drew a, a gun. I wrote <laughs> Palin and then I was doodling a gun. I'm laughing to myself because I don't think that's what a gun looks like. That looks like a... <laughs> Okay, from I'm looking at it from like it's upside down. It actually looks like a hat with just like really a really wide brim or lowly worm from Richard Scary books. Yeah, it looks. If I were to flip it around in my mind, it's a Tommy gun, but without the part that holds the bullets. It's really a spaghetti noodle. <laughs> this and is instructive. I, clearly, this is really instructive. Yeah. So here's something that jumped out to me there. If you leave evangelicalism, where are you going to go? And this is in, this is an interesting question because this is yeah. next week where we're going, right? Should you stay or should you go? And one of the things that I hope that we're doing on this show is is actually presenting alternatives. You could go liberal mainline. You could go to the Catholic Church. You could go Orthodox. You could go Mennonite. You could do whatever. But Go to a church that's not all white. Yeah, you could go to a non-white church. You go to a, a church where there are people of color in leadership over you which I actually think is a really interesting and really live option. But remember our evangelical non-Trump voter, Brandon, who said, I have all these friends, they're leaving the evangelical church, but they're not ending up anywhere yeah, in particular. Yeah. And so this is a real question. And there maybe is something to mourn that the evangelical church built something that was stable for decades and maybe it's crumbling. Maybe it's becoming inwardly focused and insular. I mean, uh, I don't know when this is going to come out, but like just recently, Franklin Graham was like saying that this accuser of Brett Kavanaugh, you know, like just totally tone deaf, apparently knows nothing about sexual abuse victims or anything. And it's like, at some point, this might sort of implode, at least at a public level. People will still do it, but... Yeah, I, I don't know. I think if anything is going to bring down like the super right-wing conservative Republican throne, mm -hmm. I think it is going to be, and I don't want to be so pro-women that it makes you nauseous. It's going to be women. But it's going to be women. Because yeah, when you look at the biggest things that are shaking things up, yeah. it has everything to do with how we are being heard and treated. And as a white, conservative, pretty right-leaning Christian woman, I don't know how the hell anybody even near me as a white Christian woman would align themselves with any party hmm. that would focus so solely on just like getting that seat for the deadline for the... Yes, for the midterms. Whatever, yeah, yeah. And let's just tell this woman that like, well, if it was that bad, it would have, you know, the, you would have called the police and all this. Uh, but of this course, thing. you know, there are local churches and local pastors who are not doing that. I mean, Franklin sure. Graham is a public sure, figure. Sure, sure. But right, I mean, right. I mean, really publicly, I think that that has to turn around. I think that people have to see 
we're not caring all over the place. It's like women and children. You take the women and children first. The Titanic, women and children. The band keeps playing. (laughs) The women and children. (laughs) Why isn't it that we care about women and children? It's like we can't be pro-abortion in the music and then a woman come out to say like, I was assaulted by- You mean pro-life. We can't be pro-life and then not listen to victims. Pro-abortion. Oh, God. Can't be pro-life and you then not be- listen to victims of sexual abuse, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. And, and then that at also some point, s- that has to align itself. And and the the if there's a hearing, we're recording this on the Friday before the supposed hearing with Kavanaugh and Professor. Oh, what's her last see, name? we don't even know her name. I just was reading it today. Anyway, it's fine. We so still that support her. May or may not happen, and then there will be information that people will have when they hear this after that happened. But the point is just that, like. You know, Trump and Graham are acting as if, well, if something wrong happens to you, like you obviously reported immediately to the police. And if you didn't, then yeah. it didn't happen. I'm like, come on. One that's thing ridiculous. that I will say that I have been really thinking about this week is that my experience with sexual assault is that I've had four or five experiences and only one of those experiences did I ever get an apology. And this was like a month or two later. You have been sexually assaulted four or five times? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. What? Yeah. Well, sorry. Can we just give me a grade of a, like what counts as assault? Well, that's a really good point. It's not always rape. Obviously. Yeah. I would, I would say that sexual assault is any sort of sexual activity that you do not want to participate in. Okay. And I'm not talking about you've been married for 10 years and you just want to like tune it out. I'm not talking about that. You mean, yeah. I'm talking about like. You wake up and something's happening to you or someone's trying to do something to you and you don't want that to happen to you. I think that that, you know. Okay. Anyway, so one person apologized to me and he said, I'm so sorry. I was in a place where I was being, you know, I was wrong. I was selfish and you are more worthy than that. And I, you know, and I believe in forgiveness and I believe that once I forgive someone, they don't owe me anymore. And I believe that that's what forgiveness is. Yeah. But thinking about that made me realize that even though Brett Kavanaugh might be, you know, a good guy or whatever, I don't know anything about him. He maybe did he But maybe he may didn't. be a great guy. Yeah. But then I think, wait a second, if this happened in his teens, and I don't believe everything that happens in our teens, we should be held responsible sure, for. right. Good Lord. Yeah. But he's had decades to reach out to this woman and say... I was wrong. That wasn't hmm. okay. You are worthy. You should not have, you did not deserve that. You should have not had that happen right. to you. He still, and still has that opportunity. He had that opportunity and he never did it. And that's what bothers me. It's well, not, yeah. at first it was just sort of like, you know, did this happen or did it not happen? But it, it's almost like how he's dealing with it. And I think that that is what this whole, this whole movement of, what we're seeing now is I think it's the administration is it's pumping out this sort of like almost like ignoring or shaming or, or something that I think is really stifling victims. And you're right. It's tone deaf. And I, you know who you don't want against you is an entire country worth of like sexual assault victims that have mm-hmm. had rage for the last yeah. 30 years. I mean, of course, there is one possibility, which is that she is misremembering and it was like maybe his buddy or something. Right. Right. Now, if that's true, 
then he would deny it and he wouldn't have apologized. Right. And just and like I said, he might be, but she needs to be heard and we need to not just say like, yes, like we're saying like, well, if this really happened, it's like, well, let's talk to her. It really needs to be heard. And then if there's a credible doubt after the hearings, then he should be disqualified. Sure. It doesn't mean he shouldn't be able to work or have his life ruined, but he shouldn't be able to be a Supreme Supre- Court justice. That, yeah, that's a pretty narrow. That should be the <laughs> highest bar. We should have a bar like that for president. We don't. Apparently we don't. We don't. And, you know, in terms of that kind of behavior, we didn't for Bill Clinton and we don't for Trump. Trump has been accused by 19 women of sexual assault. Kavanaugh won <laughs> that we know of. So it's not even apples. How I mean, did we even get here? It's one apple. I think to it's because it's right now. Forgive us. But well, as we're recording this, this is happening. Like It's, happening. it's fresh. Yeah. No, I mean, we got there organically, and when your co-host tells you they've been sexually assaulted four or five times, you're not going to not talk about it. Sure. I don't really know what to say about that. I feel awful. Here's a great practice. What do you say to someone who is like, oh, yeah, that happened to me? Uh, depending on how well you know them, you would ask for more details. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not, I mean, not with microphones <laughs> in front of your face. I don't know. What do you do? You don't really, nobody needs to know the details. They just need to know that they are heard and yeah. that it's a real thing. It's a real yeah. thing. And sure. I, I saw a really great meme today that said, <laughs> How? <laughs> okay, but that's how that's how kids are doing it, hey, Dan. This is how progress happens. Yeah. <laughs> good when, memes. When men come forward about sexual abuse, yeah, a systematic change. Think about the Catholic Church when men were coming out about their mm. sexual abuse as children. Yeah, maybe. Although a lot of them okay, came out. Okay, you're ruining the happened. meme. Go ahead. Yeah, but then when women come out about sexual assault, it's like, mm, can we believe them? There's doubt. It's like. What are they trying to get at? Are they trying to get fame, money, whatever? Why is it that we assume that when women get the gumption to say, "Okay, I'm coming forward with this," why do we? Ju- why are we so quick to be like, "Yeah, well, let's let's yeah. find out if it's true." Well, there's. I think there's some sexism there on both sides. Also, There's, most women, men don't come out about stuff because right. it's well, most humiliating. It's something like I heard today. It's like I know, but twenty percent of people ever tell anybody. It's not a sure, lot. Sure, but I would assume that men don't come out. Or well, we I, gotta, I say, gotta stop saying come out. They got they uh, don't come, come out with the accusations because yes, it's yeah. so much more humiliating for that's men. That's what I was just gonna say. The, there, that's the sexism is like men will be berated by their community. Mm-hmm. They'll be embarrassed, and then I for women. To, there's sexism like, oh, women are gold diggers, they're fame seekers right. or something like that. And I like talked that. to a few yeah. of my guy friends this week about this topic, and they were saying like, yeah, well, I was molested by my, you know, whether it was a babysitter or a sister or something. And I would have never known that had we not talked about this because, I mean, maybe inappropriate for me to know this, but men don't talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure there are people that and I And women, know it's just sort of a, it's like, me. yeah, it's a part of our lives. We have to do this. We mm. have to deal with this. Yeah, what was that? There was like a SNL video recently that was like, welcome to hell. Oh, and it was yeah. About, <laughs> it's like, oh, you guys are just waking up to this? Welcome to hell. Oh, this yeah. Welcome. Welcome to Sexual Assault 101, Our Lives. And we're back. <laughs> uh, I don't know how else to... Oh man. Okay. We're going to keep Dan, we're gonna have keep you ever going. been sexually assaulted? <laughs> 
you were not content to leave it in the previous <laughs> segment. I do not believe that I have. I'm grateful for that. Great. So now we're going to move away from Daryl. We're going to our second and final academic interviewee. This is James K. Wellman, Jim Wellman from the University of Washington. Jimmy K. Jimmy K. He's going to start by sharing some stuff that you would probably expect to hear from him or someone like him, like a liberal guy, about some moral blind spots within evangelicalism. But then, after we hear that, he's going to share some stuff that I was personally surprised by and that I think it's important to hold alongside the other stuff, alongside the criticisms, the obvious criticisms that come to mind so easily in the age of Trump. And yes, there's even a love story in here. Ooh. Embedded in the story, he met his wife, an evangelical, while doing research on liberals and evangelicals. If that is not a meet cute for this, rom-com, I don't is know this what is. The kind of stuff that gets you like theological nerds like really excited. Uh yeah. The part that I get excited about is that he was willing <laughs> This is, I could barely get this out. I'm so nerdy. The part I get most excited about is that he was willing to like marry a conservative as a liberal. Like he checked all his, you know, ideology yeah. at the door and found love. We're so different, Dan. You and I get excited about different things. Yeah, that's okay. Well, we'll see what our listeners think. Here is Jim. The problem of evangelicalism at times, in order to get the message of Jesus Christ out they sometimes had to compromise. They generally have compromised over pretty critical issues, I would argue. Many either compromised in slavery or, in some cases, own slaves. And so their record on that issue is, needless to say, mixed. They appear to think that Trump is really an evangelical. Some of them do, yeah. Yeah. And so they can forgive him on these really critical issues yeah. and just sort of ignore it. And it's, it's extraordinary. But it's, it's been something that's within the evangelical tradition in the past. Hmm. Can you give us some examples in the past? Of, of well, I mean, in the case of slavery, you know, in the case of women's rights, uh, they're, you know, wink, wink, we're not quite there with that which I think is a justice issue and, and clearly, I would argue, something that Christians should have equality for all people, no matter who they are. Evangelicals, I would say, have, not all, but some have a, a blind spot for social justice issues that are clear, I would say, you know, very much clearly a part of what the scripture would call for. So. You had this experience with this liberal mainline Protestant church that you really valued in Chicago. And you set out on this study. And just from our previous conversations, it, it seems like you were surprised in some ways by how endeared you became to the evangelicals. Whereas maybe before that, you would have found yourself more naturally at home with the liberals. It felt like to me that the evangelicals took their faith much more seriously. And I came to respect that. Not just their faith, but when I studied how, what they did in terms of social service, that's really kind of one of the most shocking findings of the book, is that evangelicals by far empirically did much more in terms of service to others. And I'm talking about direct service, like 
helping the poor, feeding those who have nothing, you know, clothing the naked, all the things that scriptures talk about that you should do if you're going to follow Jesus. And liberals would talk about it, but generally they were pretty serious about homelessness. And yeah. it did a lot to alleviate homelessness. But you really didn't hear of them doing much else besides that. Evangelicals over and over again, they were just doing informal acts of service to their next door neighbors or in their neighborhood or giving to people that it wasn't through any kind of formal ministries. And so that pattern became so overwhelming in the interviews that we couldn't help but notice it. And we just said, hmm, there's something going on here. I think in the process of doing the research, and I think this is really important, is I wasn't making this up. This was actual research. This is from actually talking to people in small groups and individually, them telling you what they were doing. And so it wasn't ever written down. There was no way to calculate what they were doing otherwise unless you asked them. And so we had older men who were retired and they would say, well, what do you, what, what do you all do in activities? And he said, well, we just have a small group of five retired men and once a week we go and paint houses of a neighbor who needs it. And they were obviously doing that out of their heartfelt belief that this is what Christ would call them to do. But no one would know about them doing that. So that really had an impact on me in the sense that, you know, the, the kind of cheap shots that are taken against evangelicals really are cheap shots. And they're usually done by secular liberals who really don't know what they're talking about. So that I can became kind of a spokesperson for standing up for evangelicals and saying, hey, do you actually know what they do? And generally nobody knew. It was kind of humble active service to, to, to people in real need. It wasn't put on. It wasn't pretentious. It wasn't self-righteous. It wasn't all the things that some people talk about when they talk about evangelical culture. Now, do I believe, you know, in kind of the political stance of evangelicals? No, in general. And I just came to respect their choices and respect how they live their lives. So it's kind of, I think it's funny that, that this study actually had empirical impact on my dramatic impact on my personal life. Yeah. And I would say, and Brooke would say that, you know, my wife, that she's an evangelical Christian. And I have a lot of respect. We have some little bit of disagreements on some issues, and she knows my differences. But what I will say about this, and, and I think there's some empirical evidence for this, is that evangelical Christians are generally happier people. Mm. And I experience Brooke as, as a, an incredibly happy person, joyful person. And there's nothing quite like that. As they say, you can't buy a happiness. And I think that comes in part from her piety and her practice of prayer, scripture reading. So yeah, so I think what's interesting about this and really kind of important to me is that these are empirical findings. Yeah. So these aren't just 
my random opinions about these churches. We have this research from 12 megachurches across the country. And the overwhelming findings are that people are incredibly happy and incredibly joyful and, and find enormous strength for their lives in these churches. Mm-hmm. Most of the energy gets, you know, is really oriented towards scandals. And, and most... Most journalistic jo- Yeah, most journalism comes out of looking at scandals. But the really interesting part is what happens in these joyful, powerful movements. And what, what's really, you know, so how do you, how do you understand and explain joy that is developed in these congregations? Basically, our findings show that megachurches are really good and giving people this deep, deep sense of peace, that, you know, as the scripture would say, passes understanding. And in an important direction for their lives, for, the, for their families, to help, you know, grow uh, families that are emotionally healthy and have good direction. It's really fun to find out that megachurches are places where humans are being transformed. And why? And how, how does that exactly happen? That's really interesting to me. So. Boom, Ellen. That might be the kindest we have been to evangelicals in three seasons of the show. Well, I mean, not me. I, I'm, I'm always devil's advocate. Yeah. I'm over here being an evangelical. I don't know what the big deal is. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that hearing Jim's words are a really valuable counterweight to a lot of criticisms that are, some of them are very justified that we throw around or that guests of ours throw around on the show. And I'm wondering what you thought about that. Do you just think, yeah, duh, we're awesome. Or did you think... No, I don't put we. And I, I never say you're we again. I don't... Sure. You're an evangelical. By way of the quiz I took, sure. Yeah. You but go I to think, an evangelical church. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, I for sure do. But I, I think there's something about the style of it and the community of it. And that is what leads to what he's talking about as this like really connected like life-giving, joy-filled, family-oriented experience. And I don't know if we can chalk that up to being evangelical or or just the style of community that those churches produce. Yeah. It's very robust. It's yeah. all about like life throughout the week and activities. And I hate to use the term doing life together, but that's a thing. Yeah. And it's Real like a very positive, hopeful, like real... Thing. So if that's what an evangelical community looks like, then I'm really lucky then to be a part of Sign me up. Yeah. Well, I'm lucky to be a part of one. Dan, would you like to come to my church? <laughs> it's probably too Calvinist for me, but I do think that our church people would probably consider it evangelical, even though it's Presbyterian. It's like the more conservative Presbyterian denomination. And it, it shares a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And it is a thick community. You know, like community groups are a big deal. People do try and live life together. No tambourines, but that's fine. No tambourines. No streamers or dancing in the aisles. Super Presbyterian. <laughs> but the thing that actually stood out to me most was him talking about the service. And this is something that m- might have slipped under the cracks for people who are listening. But I don't know if you noticed this. He said people usually don't measure 
a lot of this work that evangelicals do because they don't tell people about it. You have to ask them. So they started asking and then they got the data. Yeah. But like, that's Christ-like. Yeah. To just paint you have to houses. prod someone to find out if they're being Christ-like. That is the goal. That is the dream right there, is that someone would be doing that without telling anyone, and you'd have to know to ask Are them. Are you the type of person that would just keep all that service to yourself? I I, uh, I, tr- I think I will, but I tend to find ways to leak talk it. about you it. You just leak it out a little bit, some leaked I, documents. I leak, I leak here and there. Or Jaffrey will mention it to someone and I'll be like, thank you for mentioning that yeah, but in also, my mind. Yeah. But I won't say that out loud. Oh, Jaff. But thank you. Yeah, you know. really? No, I'm, I'm not good at that. But I, I even recognize in myself this kind of latent evangelical spirit of like, I should be doing service and I should not tell people about it. And when I heard him talk about that, I was like, I recognize that these older men are better at it than I am. But like that, I want to be that way. I want to be like those old evangelical men in that sense. Now, if they voted for Trump and if they yeah, want to keep matter. refugees out, I don't want to be like them sure, in that but, sense. But, but, but that doesn't right. matter. The whole idea of being, and I've s- talked about this on another episode, is that episode of Friends where they challenge <laughs> Phoebe to say like, is there a selfless deed? Hmm. And, and I mentioned Kant and we're going to do it all again. Sure. But what I mean, this is something very similar. Can you be a humble servant and no one knows? Yeah. I mean, well, anyway, that's the goal. And these, you know, I mean. But but the true goal is to not have it be a goal. The true goal is to just do it. Because if you're consciously thinking about like, oh, nobody knows. Kind of want people to know. know." The true goal is to just have your heart change and it. Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to will one thing. I think that's in the Bible too, but it's like. Eh, if, Bible, Kierkegaard. Nah, potato, potato. Oh if you gosh. if you will one thing, the good of others, the love of God, then you won't care that people know. Yeah. It's a, it's a big ideal. That's a good place it's to a end good it challenge. Today. That's a really good challenge for us. One, I want to start praying more. Okay. A practice, a, a like regular, a liturgic. Yeah. Liturgical practice. Liturgical practice. And two, I think for us both, I think this would be a really good practice too. We don't need to go feed the homeless and not tell anybody. This is not not like an application, but just sort of be thinking about like, why do we feel like people need to know if we did a good deed? Just like when I came over to your house tonight and you said, what did you do today? You said I did a good deed. The first thing I said. I didn't ask you what it was. That's exactly right. Because I was like, okay, I checked that off my list. Because my friend's and nanny then fell I, through, I and then tell I Dan. went. And no, now you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, and then my na- my friend's nanny fell through, and I went over with my own kid to babysit her kid. It's not easy, but I was happy to do it because I would want someone to do it for me. Is that humble? Not now that not, you're talking now about that it. I'm talking certain, about it. Now that thousands of people hear it, it's certainly not humble. Yeah. Also, saying the phrase "thousands of people will hear it" also not humble. <laughs> But listen, I was going to say, here's the challenge. Go do an act of service and then don't tell anyone about it. And there's no way that for, we can know that we did it. For two days and then you can tell us about it because we want to hear it. And then we'll read it on the air and we'll tell you what we did. <laughs> I'm not going to do anything. I already did no, my okay. good deed today. This is getting Okay. Well, you guys, thank you for listening. Hopefully this was a helpful episode 
certainly Daryl and Jim had a lot of helpful things to say. Yeah, whether or not and we also did. it's kind of late while we're recording. It this. is. It's oh, past ten p.m. My eyes are so. Next week, we're going to hear from author Danielle Mayfield. We're going to hear from author and former editor of Christianity Today, which Daryl mentioned, Caitlin Beatty. Okay. And we are going to ask them how to discern whether or not to stay within evangelicalism. This or is to going search to be good for greener pastures. Cue the outro song, Ellen. You know what it's going to be. No, clash. Oh my god, darling, you got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? If you say that you are mine, I'll be here till the end of time. So you got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? Is oh, this the kind of stuff that gets you like theological nerds like really excited? Hard. What? Gross. <laughs> edit that out. Can we edit that out? You're gonna like the love story part. I probably will because okay. it'll be the only interesting part. No. Oh. See, we gotta we gotta get this all. Blah, 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 blah. This is bad. We got. This, we have to get on track. Say. You, I, okay, that we whole gotta get back part, on track. We're sloppy. That whole part is in the bloopers, so we're Chris, good this again. Is, I have never even met you. I think you should keep that part too. Should I stay or should I?